0: It's
1: time. Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World, and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host.
0: Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast, On today's podcast, I wanted to spend a few minutes and talk about something interesting in the space that's around the media and the way the media is interwoven with each other, kind of like a bowl of spaghetti. There's so many things that kind of touch on each other that it's hard to kind of separate one entity from another to a large degree. And I I just wanted to talk about that. And the reason I started thinking about this was um, unrelated to Disney, actually. I had heard a song uh, that I hadn't heard since the 90s. Woo, there it is. And you've probably heard this song before. If you've uh, ever listened to a little bit of hip-hop, you probably heard it. It's it's popular in movies and TVs and whatever. So the story is, in the nutshell, two guys that were DJs came up with this song while they were working at a club. They wind up signing with a record label. The song gets very popular. It goes up Billboard's charts to a high number. Um, I don't think it made it to number one, but it was inside the top ten anyway. Very popular song. Some other people who had released another song about a month before this one came out said it was copyright infringement. They, had, uh, they went up, wound up suing, and uh, the legal case... Brewed on for many, many years. And in fact, it extended into another legal case because what had happened was these two guys, they were just, you know, average guys working at a club, doing whatever, and they signed on with a record label. The record label then sold the rights to distribute the song to somebody else, and it got distributed, sent to someone else, and applied to someone else when they went to bankruptcy and the whole thing. So these guys made a little bit of money, but the song itself went in some weird limbo. As it worked around and they figured out who owned it and what happened to it. And the legal case wasn't decided until very recently. And it was very complicated and convoluted because who owned what and where it got sold to and who owned it and whatever. And no one really wound up winning in the legal case because it dragged on for so long and there were so many bankruptcies along the way. But uh, it's just interesting how these things get so convoluted and complicated. And it's not as simple as just someone saying, oh, I own that song, or I have that, the distribution rights to that particular movie, or whatever. So I find that really interesting, and it kind of got me to thinking about you know, sort of the Disney space and some of the things that go on there. And I'll start my story about Disney with the uh, what's called the Freeform Network. I found this one the other day on the TV. I was switching around. They were showing a movie. I think it was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I'm like, great, I want to watch this. And I'm thinking, Freeform, why do I know Freeform? And I had to kind of go back in my head and think about it, and I had to go Google it. And remember that this used to be the ABC Family Channel. Now you have to back up in history to understand what happened here. So the Christian Broadcasting Network created something called the Family Channel. Way back when in the 1990s, and they were broadcasting on it and whatever, and they had certain religious shows that they showed on it, and then they had some other shows that were family-oriented shows and whatever. They decided they wanted to get out of that business, so they put it up for sale. Fox bought it and called it the Fox Family Channel. Now, why do they call it the Fox Family Channel? Because in the agreement to purchase it, the uh, Christian Broadcasting Network, the CBN, had told them that they had to keep the name family in it, and they still had to air some of the religious programming so many times a week and so many times a year and so forth. And so Fox did that. They agreed to it. They bought it, whatever. Then they started broadcasting on it. And it wasn't what Fox was looking for, so they put it up for sale a few years after that, and Disney decided to buy it. And Michael Eisner was the uh, person behind the, the purchase. He was trying to build his media empire, and he had this, uh, this here's another channel he could use uh, to distribute some of his shows and so forth. So they signed the agreement to uh, to purchase it from Fox. And the problem was, the legal agreement about calling it family still applied, and they still had to show some of the CBN network shows. And it got very complicated because Disney didn't want to do that, so they called it the ABC Family Network and continued to broadcast the shows that they were supposed to. There were some restrictions on some of the shows they could have. It couldn't go past a certain rating. Some other things, there were some uh, things they couldn't show on it and whatever. Very complicated, right? Because of this agreement that came from the CBN two sales ago. And so it was just kind of a f- weird, funny thing that happened. So at some point in the last few years, Disney decided to Uh, try and make a uh, complete buyout and get out of the deal with the CBN so they can make it whatever they wanted. And the CBN said, no, (laughs) we like it the way it is. We're getting more distribution this way. We want to keep it the way it is. So we're not going to change the agreement. Disney uh, reportedly offered a lot of money to be able to take control of it. And they said no. And finally, um, a year or so ago, maybe two years or now or so, they were actually able to Uh, get them to agree to change the name so it didn't have to have family in it anymore. And they got them to allow them to show a little more uh, edgy programming. It's still Disney-oriented, so there's not a lot of, you know, ridiculousness in it, but a little more edgy in that sense where there's more things in it that you might not expect from from like a Christian Broadcasting Network type show. But they still have to show several religious shows every week. (laughs) And it's just one of those odd, weird things that happens. And so, you know, Disney is okay with that because they still have the distribution channel and they can still do some things. And they have more control over it. It's just not what I think they set out to be in the first place. It's a little bit odd and awkward in the way that they set it up. Now, because the, uh, the particular show, The 700 Club, that still airs there, uh, sometimes says some things that are a little bit... Um, I'll use the word... Uh, what's the word I want to use here? A little more aggressive, a little more in-your-face... Disney actually posts a warning before the shows that this is solely the content of the CBN, has nothing to do with Disney, doesn't reflect anything of the station, the owners, Disney, and so on and so on and so on, because they don't want to be affiliated with it. And it's just kind of an interesting thing that happened there, you know, that kind of came to this level. So one of those interesting and intricate network deals that happens there as a result of, you know, some oddities that are going on and some some unusual uh, relationships and some of these... um. Things that happen over time. Then there was the story about uh, Harvey Weinstein. He was the guy who was accused of uh, basically uh, sexually assaulting a number of women as a uh, Hollywood honcho. And, you know, it turns out that a lot of the stories about the casting couch and, you know, trading sexual favors for uh, being able to be in movies and so forth, turns out that maybe a lot of that was true. And a guy like Weinstein was just a horrible person who did some things like that. And how does that relate to Disney? Well, there's an actress who was working for Miramax Films who was um, assaulted by uh, Weinstein at the time. And Miramax happened to be uh, connected to Disney. They weren't directly owned by Disney, but I think Disney did the distribution from Miramax, I think, or maybe that Disney had a stake in it. I can't remember exactly what the relationship was there. Again, complicated. But Disney was involved in it. And so she amended her lawsuit to include the Disney company and specifically Bob Iger for not doing anything to protect against Weinstein. Uh, and his advances and why this is interesting is simply because there's so much detail and intricacy around these relationships that all of these companies are interwoven in some way and they're all helping each other out you know Disney distributes this but somebody else owns that and this one works with this one and this other <clears throat> studio head works with this other person and all of these people are interconnected in some way but it's hard to say who's who exactly Did, was Disney wrong In terms of the way it it managed the relationship, did Disney let this happen under its watch? I would say the answer is probably yes with an asterisk, because they were no different than any other company where they weren't paying attention to anything that was going on around them. So all these things were happening, and there was allegations of assault and all these other things happening, and nobody was doing anything about it. So was Disney specifically involved? I would say no. You know, it's one of these things where it's very complicated in the legal sense. Who's going to win out? How does this happen? I don't know anyone's guess. I'm just looking at it from the uh, outside and going, wow, this is interesting because there's so many intricate relationships that happen there. The next thing that I was thinking about, <laughs> and there's always more, right, was this um, this one story I read about um, the Securities and Exchange Commission agreeing to look into Disney and its bookkeeping. There was an allegation by a former employee who said that Disney was, in quotes, cooking the books, that Disney was double dipping on some expenses, um, was double double counting revenue, that they were incorrectly inflating their uh, their income. And with all of the relationships between all of these companies that Disney owns, manages, maintains, and so forth, it's entirely possible that there's just an accounting problem here with all of these companies and how they manage each of the entities and how it rolls back up to the Disney company on the whole. Or, of course, it is possible that they have done something wrong. Now, I'm not trying to accuse them of anything. I'm just stating that, you know, you don't know because there's so many intricacies and so many different relationships here and so many, you know, lines that cross and connect to each other and so many things that are happening. It's impossible to know what happens. Now, the woman primarily accuses the Disney parks of having done some wrongdoing and having done some things where they took money and moved it and, you know, double counted uh, like gift cards and so forth. You know, I have no way of knowing this is true or not true. It's just an observation that it was interesting to hear her story, or at least as it was released to the media. It's kind of a short story because it was only the uh, press release that came from the SEC that they were looking into it. And I find it kind of interesting because, again, you don't know what the relationships are here. We do know that revenue uh, was shown to be up, but park attendance was shown to be down. Now, those two are not necessarily related because people that were going may have been spending more, so who knows, but... You know, you look at it and you go, wow, it's so complicated. It's, there's so many things happening there. And because they could be using money from other sources, all these other entities that they have, whether it's ESPN or because of the sale of Fox, uh, the purchase of Fox, uh, 20th Century Fox, or the per- purchase of um, any other entity they have or their movie studios or their Pixar or something else, it could be a lot of different things that were causing this change in the uh, behavior and what was happening there with their their, uh, their numbers. You just don't know. And that's the complicating factor. It's like, yeah, that sounds, that's a salacious headline. But does it really have any significance or meaning? I don't know. I can't tell. And I can only suppose at this point that there could be something to it. Let's let the SEC investigate and we'll find out what it is. Now, for its part, Disney says that they did no wrongdoing. This woman had been fired previously because she was, you know, uh, a nutcase, essentially. They're, you know, not exactly those words, but essentially saying that about her. And then, of course, about the uh, Weinstein one you know, Iger and the Disney company both categorically denied it and they don't want to have, have anything to do with it. So interesting, right? All of these things, just kind of big bowl of spaghetti, all these things happening, all these interesting little nuggets in the news. And then we can turn to uh, the whole Star Wars uh, empire that uh, Disney purchased. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, I thought, I had a supposition that maybe George Lucas owned more than you thought he did, that he still owned a large portion of what the, uh, the Star Wars empire was, that maybe he owned the rights to the characters or some other things. So, you know, I'm kind of going around and I'm doing my own little thing and I'm doing a little research. And I find out that, wow, you know, in the past, when George Lucas first decided to do Star Wars, the agreement he signed with 20th Century Fox was very, very complicated it was really an interesting thing that he did, because they took a risk on him. They took a flyer based on based on the fact that he had this clever idea for a space movie that maybe would be something, and they gave him some amount of money to do it, but they owned the rights to the movie, and they owned the distribution rights to the movie. He owned the characters, he owned a lot of other things within the movie, so there was a lot of, you know, nuanced relationship there. And then, of course, he owned all the toy rights and everything else. So, he owned those personally. The studio owned the movie, right? So it's very complicated. Then as you get further into it, then the second movie comes out because they, they decide they really want to have a sequel now. He had in mind three movies. They, they're like, that's great. Second movie comes out. He, uh, he starts Lucasfilm that actually controls most of, the, uh, most of the material that goes into that. But again, he still owns the characters and the toy rights, but now Lucasfilm is creating it and Fox... 20th Century Fox is distributing it for him, and they're actually uh, managing the money coming in. They're basically giving him the money to to, uh, fund the production. So you see how complicated this is, right? You can start to envision how complicated it is. Then by the time the third movie came around, it's even more complicated. You know, same kind of a thing where it's just all these different entities involved. And then you flash forward 20 years when he decides to do episodes one, two, and three. And now it's a completely different relationship because he's producing it as Lucasfilm entirely on his own but he's still distributing it through 20th Century Fox. So now it's his. So when he decides to sell Lucasfilm to Disney, he's selling the technology, some of the movies, some of the rights, uh, the distribution rights to the ones that he had, except for episode one. (laughs) I'm sorry, except for episode four, the first one that came out. And, you know, it gets very complicated in that sense. So then Disney wanted to have the distribution rights to episode four. And the only way to get it was to get it from 20th Century Fox. And Fox didn't want to sell it, and it became more complicated, and it went through this whole thing of, you know, how do we get there? And uh, Disney winds up buying 20th Century Fox, and they get the distribution rights to all six of the movies. and But they don't necessarily own all the character rights, the toy rights, the distribution rights, all of that stuff that goes beyond just the films themselves. And this is where it all got complicated. And I think this is where Disney finds themselves now because it's not clear what they can do within that space and what they can't do. And I think they're still trying to iron out all the legal agreements and all the little things there. And I think George Lucas knows exactly what he did and what he got because he made like a billion dollars on the sale. But yet he still has more control than anyone would ever believe. It's really strange and kind of a weird thing the way it all worked out or maybe didn't work out at this point. But it's an interesting problem. It's so intricate and complicated that I don't. I think it's going to take, you know, a long time before all the lawyers can kind of hammer out all the details. So really interesting. And kind of an aside on that, um, in the park sense, Galaxy's Edge, that may explain why there's no characters from episodes one through six in it. Um, it's possible that this is all part of that agreement while they're still ironing it out because they may have thought they had more than they had. See my previous notes about... The whole ABC family thing where Eisner and the Disney company didn't realize, apparently, at least according to the story, that they, could, they couldn't change the name from family. So very complicated thing, right? So it could be the same kind of a thing where they just made an error in their assumptions about what they got and what they didn't get. And they're still trying to iron out the, uh, the details. So we'll see how that all nets out. It could be that the Star Wars land will change once they iron out some more details. You never know. Um, and as far as the Star Wars land itself goes, interesting thing, Hurricane Dorian came through uh, a few days after it opened. And so the park attendance was way down because people were kind of staying away from the storm as much as they could. Uh, and the park had to close early one day. So attendance has been low for the early parts of the early times that the, the uh, Star Wars land has been open over at Hollywood Studios. Whether that will change remains anyone's guess. Disney didn't have to pull out all the stops and say, okay, we're going to limit guest attendance. We're not going to hold back from uh, annual pass holders coming, coming in. None of those things, because the attendance hasn't been as spectacular as maybe they would have liked. And I think part of it has to do with, since they opened Disneyland first, uh, they learned a lot. There was a lot of learnings that happened just being at Disneyland and seeing what happened there. And I think by letting the the guests the public go in and look at it and see it through youtube and other ways blog about it and whatever i think people got a sense of it and decided whether they wanted to go now or later or just hold off and see what it was going to be like rather than trying to book all their trips at one time like right when it opens Uh, i think disney learned a lot when they opened pandora land uh, the avatar land uh in uh, the uh, animal kingdom because that one stayed packed for about three months and because they couldn't quite figure out how to manage their crowds, it just was a very crowded and co- a very crowded thing that happened there. So interesting, and I, you know, I look at that and I go, okay, so maybe there's more to this. Um, you know, maybe the crowds will come later, or maybe it'll just be a steady stream of people that come through. We're at the end of the summer now, so maybe it will start to pick up. You know, as we head into the late fall, we'll see. Um, but kind of interesting. Now there was one other piece to this puzzle that was the. Uh, intricate, complicated network of media conglomerates and so forth. And this has to do with the uh, Marvel Universe that, uh, that Disney bought. So they purchased uh, all of the Marvel components uh, from Stan Lee, uh, and, uh, say, or from the organization that Stan Lee was working with. I'm not sure who owned it last. Anyway, they got it, and uh, they were creating all these different movies, and they were doing all these different things, and they, uh, they made the Avengers, and it included Spider-Man. Now, the problem is <laughs> that while Disney owns the rights to Spider-Man the character, Disney does not own the rights to any distribution of any media involving Spider-Man. <laughs> because that's actually owned by Sony Pictures. So they were trying to work out a deal with Sony. Uh, Sony allowed Spider-Man to be used in the Avengers movies. They were allowing that to be to happen, and they took some money out of the deal, and everybody, everybody won in that sense. But when Disney wanted to make a standalone Spider-Man movie... Sony said no, we're not going to let you do that. We want to. We own Spider-Man. We don't want to do that. You know, the money was the issue there. Really, they wanted to figure out what the uh, the right amount of money would be to change hands to make this work, but they haven't they haven't settled on a number yet. So Disney has detached itself from the Spider-Man portion for now because they can't do anything with it. Of course, they can have Spider-Man at the parks. They can do some things with him uh, thematically, but they can't produce any uh, movies or. Books or character likenesses in the in that sense, where they distribute them. So it's a very weird and complicated thing that they have going on there. That again, it's just back to these relationships and how all these things work. How did Spider-Man wind up being sold off to Sony? Well, it had something to do with you know Spider-Man uh, wanting they wanting to have Sp- uh, Spider-Man standalone movies, and Sony was willing to fund it, so they were willing to chip that off and sell it as the distribution part. But they but Stanley still owned the uh, the Spider-Man uh, character very complicated. It's just, it's so crazy when you stop and think about it, how all these media relationships work and how all these different companies interact with each other, these different media giants. You know, at the end of the day, everyone wants to make a buck and they're going to do everything they can to make maximize their profits off of a franchise or a character that they think is enormously popular. That's the whole idea. So there you go. That was my thoughts about all of the things that I've heard and kind of uh, thinking about over the last, couple of weeks just interesting i found it i found the whole thing kind of interesting because this whole bowl of spaghetti that i like to call it of the media empires is just so interesting there's so many things happening it's impossible to keep track of it all it's very convoluted and it's it's confusing but it's kind of cool in its own weird sort of a way it's just interesting to learn about all these things so i just wanted to share that with you i hope you've enjoyed it and remember if we can dream it we can certainly do it bye now